Hello, I'm Rose Pierre-Louis, Chief Operating Officer of the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at New York University. Welcome to a new episode of Black Boys and Men, Changing the Narrative. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Devine Pryor. He's the former executive director of the Center for New Leadership on Urban Solutions in Brooklyn, New York, and a social scientist focused on addressing the effects of criminalization and mass incarceration. Welcome, Dr. Pryor. Thank you, Rosemont, so much for having me. No conversation, Dr. Pryor, about changing the narrative on Black boys and men is complete without discussing the role of mass incarceration and its disproportionate impact on Black males. You have a unique perspective to share with us, both as a scholar and as someone who is formerly incarcerated. So please share with our listeners, how did you come about doing this work? And also if you can incorporate in your response, your own personal journey. Sure, and again, thank you for having me. Um, This is a subject, as you know, that's very near and dear to me uh, personally. It's really interesting how I, I got into this work but you know, hindsight being 2020, as I think back into my public school days, I recognize the fact that as a young, intelligent black boy in school who was very inquisitive, uh, the public school system was not prepared uh, for the kind of energy that I brought to the table. And of course, my inquisitive nature led them to define my behavior as disruptive. And at that time, you know, Classrooms were fairly large, so teachers, I um, assume, didn't have a lot of time to focus on uh, young men who were not complying and were not well-behaved and were not conforming. And so they, you know, sent me to detention. Uh, Needless to say, I I used to organize the young men in detention uh, and the young ladies as well and help them with their homework and help them with the science projects because... I really love school. I love reading. I love writing. I love math. I love science. Uh, None of this, though, was identified. Uh, Even when the monitor in detention uh, himself would come in and ask me questions about how to spell a word or whatever, never recognize if this guy's in detention and he can help me and I'm the monitor and I see him organizing the other young men and women, uh, maybe we need to take a second look at him. But that never happened. So I was eventually, you know, expelled from school and into the streets and the streets welcomed me with open arms. And of course, you know, the, the rest is history. That life on the street led me to incarceration at the young age of 17. I actually was sentenced at 17. I was 18 when I first hit uh, the New York State Correctional Facilities. And I always had a book in my pocket. Uh, throughout the whole experience in public school and the whole trip upstate. And when I got upstate, I always had a book because I always wanted to read. I always wanted to learn. I always wanted to grow. So I had a love for, for learning at a very, very young age, but yet no one still picked up on this. And it wasn't until I was in Elmira Correctional Facility in the early 80s that a nun, uh, an Irish nun, actually who was the librarian, she would come around with the books And when she stopped in front of my cell, I asked her, could I have a couple of books? She says, you get one book. I says, well, you know, I read pretty fast. You know, I said, well, when you read that one, I'll give you another. So she gave me the first book. I read it. And the next day she came, I said, could I have another book? As I'm handing her the book. 
So she looked at me, you know, with a curious look, but she gave me the book. This went on for two or three days. She said, so you're actually re reading these books? And I said, yeah. And she began to question me, and I began to tell her about the book. And so she was so fascinated. And she and I developed a relationship. And she, at that point, was ready to give me any number of books I want. In fact, she asked me, did I have any books that she didn't have that I was interested in? Perhaps she could get them. And so this relationship led me to go to school while I was in prison. Interestingly enough, uh, I didn't even have my GED at the time. And I, I remember specifically that I scored so high on the GED that the correction officer said that I obviously cheated and they made wow. me take it over again. And I took it over again and I scored even higher than the first time. And they never apologized. And I don't know why that troubled me. But I was really bothered by that for a long time. And I don't know why I should have been. I mean, I didn't know them. They didn't know me. Um, but it just was another indictment of me not, you know, being who they wanted me to be, you know, not fitting in, you know, not uh, complying. And so, you know, I took, you know, to education like a fish to water. And all through my experience in prison, which spanned uh, 10 years, I um, went to school, went to, got my GED, of course, went to pre-college, went into college, and I graduated summa cum laude on, on every level. Academics to me is natural. I never struggled in school. I never found anything difficult, you know, in the classroom. Um, I was not intimidated by the tests when they gave pop quizzes. I always answered questions. I did extra papers. I um, ended up being a tutor in the class. I ended up being the librarian uh, in the uh, college program. And anywhere where there was some learning taking place, that's where you'd find me. And that's how I actually got into this work. So uh, I think you just pointed out something that we hear so often that happens in the public schools is that um, so often for not only black boys, but black girls, we are over-disciplined, suspended, any uh, behavior that is deemed um, problematic, either you are sent to detention or you're labeled or you're sent into specialized classes. And that certainly, as you described, can really um, uh, put a young person on uh, a, a difficult journey and can extinguish their passions. Yeah. Obviously it did not for you because you were so, um, you so loved learning, but we hear that story over and over again. Um, can you tell us a little bit then um, um, how that led to the start of the Center for New Leadership? Yeah, well, you know, I began to, notice uh, that there were other uh, young black men in prison. In fact, when you go upstate, um, it doesn't make a difference which state facility you go to. Um, there's just a sea of, of black men in, in every direction. What Do you know what the percentages are currently? Well, currently the percentages have been going down, but black men still make up 70% uh, or more of the prison population. And then the rest, of course, is uh, Latino, uh, Latinx, uh, and we have an increasing number of black women now. In fact, black women are the fastest growing segment of the prison population yes. uh, in America. They're growing at a rate of 400%. And that is startling, uh, considering the fact that when you incarcerate a man, you incarcerate a person. But when you incarcerate a woman, you incarcerate the entire family. Uh, the woman is the cornerstone of the family. And to um, place a woman in confinement 
undermines the whole stability, the whole foundation of the family. Uh, and it's uh, most likely that not only was she the caretaker, but in many cases, the breadwinner. And while we're on the subject, uh, these same women, uh, as we look at the research, uh, had histories of domestic violence yes. um, uh, and, and, and substance abuse and, and, and the vast majority of and them fall under- And also sexual assault, I'm Sexual sorry. assault, absolutely, you know, and a vast majority of them fall under the federal poverty rate. And, you know, so all of the, the, the factors, you know, that, you know, we see in men um, with the women, they take on a slight difference because the loss, you know, to the community, to the family when women are incarcerated is so devastating. And uh, I can't say enough, you know, about, you know, what's happening, you know, with the women seems to me to be um, because we pretty much exhausted the men. So now let's, you know, turn, you know, to the women. And a lot of times the women are there for uh, crimes that are a result of them attempting to survive, you know, so their their drug sales or drug transport, you know, or if there's any violence, it was because they were protecting themselves or they found themselves in a situation where their lives were threatened. So, you know, um, I can't say enough about our women. I spent a lot of time studying the impact of incarceration on women as well. And so that's something that's near to dear to me as well. Um, I haven't had anyone in my immediate family, any of the women incarcerated, but I've had many women who, in my life, you know, who I went to school with and grew up with, who ended up in prison. And so it, it saddens me. But overall, you know, the prison system is, let me just use the word insidious. I want to say that um, it's intentional and it's on purpose. And one of the things that, you know, I um, often tell people is that when we used to rally that we should fix the system, uh, we were complicit uh, in supporting a system that was devastating our communities. Why do I say that? Because if something is broken and you fix it, then it continues to operate the way it was prior. In fact, it may even operate better. So if this system is incarcerating black men and women, if it's devastating communities, if it's separating families, if it's dismantling our infrastructure, if it's completely demolishing our capacity, if it's causing us to lose our voting power, if this system is doing so much damage to our communities, why would we want to fix this system? So the system is not broken. The system is operating the way it was designed. If you if you create an assembly line and the engineer, the mechanic who creates it, creates it so that it produces widgets. Uh, when you get to the end of the assembly line and they're taking widgets off and placing them in boxes, no one is surprised because the system is designed to produce widgets. Now, of course, if the system did not produce widgets, then we would say, hold up pump the brakes because this system is not producing what it was designed to do. We know that the um, prison industrial complex is a vast array of government, non-government, public and private entities that have come together to form uh, this uh, organism, which now has taken on a life of its own. And it is eating up uh, black boys um, at such a rate that we, we're having a difficult time to even begin to know how to dismantle it, where do we begin, because it, it, it goes so far back. I mean, it, it has historical implications, of course. Uh, you know that there are many uh, folks who are activists and advocates who say that the prison system today is nothing more than chattel slavery of yesterday. 
And there's there's a lot of information to support that. Uh, and I certainly wouldn't argue that because when you go into the prison system and the vast majority of people in prison are the descendants of former slaves, one cannot help but to you know, scratch his head and say, hold up, something is wrong with this picture. If you look at the 13th Amendment and the 13th Amendment, you know, says, um, and I'm paraphrasing that uh, slavery is abolished, except if you're convicted of a crime, uh, then you have to begin to start wondering, you know, what this system is all about. I remember when I was uh, doing some research and on the uh, Emancipation Proclamation, and I began to um, read the fine line and realize that the creation of laws, you know, at that time were designed specifically to reinstate chattel slavery, but use the legal system as a mechanism to give it legitimacy. And so when an individual, you know, learned that they were free and they left the plantation, they were charged with vagrancy because a vagrant was anyone who didn't have a place to live and didn't have employment. So if you left the plantation, you were unemployed and you didn't have residency, therefore you were breaking the law and you were arrested and you were placed in custody. Uh, and then the convict leasing program was designed and that program said that anyone who was arrested could be leased back to their plantation. And then they created the literacy laws. And the literacy laws were very interesting because the literacy law was applied to people who just became free and wanted to vote. And they said, fine, you could vote, but you first have to take this literacy test. Of course, if you took the test and passed it, you were arrested because the slave wasn't allowed to read. So, and this is on the books even till today. So thank you for providing our listeners with that overview and historic perspective. So can you talk about how all of these factors led to the creation of this center. Yes, and so the center is the um, first and the only to this date uh, criminal justice, research, public policy, advocacy, and training center created, developed, and designed by formerly incarcerated professionals representing every discipline from law to medicine. And the center was created uh, when a number of men and women uh, were released from prison in the uh, early to mid-90s, began to have some conversations about the criminal, uh, what we refer to punishment system, and how we could begin to start doing some interventions to slow the process down, to begin to dismantle the system, to disrupt the system. But we knew that um, there was a lot wrong with it. And so it was rather informal. It wasn't until the early 2000s, around 2003, when my colleague, the late Eddie Ellis, um, was actually a senior consultant at the Open Society uh, Foundation. And he actually um, overheard a conversation where they were talking about emerging leaders in various different disciplines. And in the area of criminal justice, he you know, couldn't help but poke his head in and say, hey, as far as I'm concerned, I don't think anything new in criminal justice can happen unless those who are directly impacted are at the table. Unless we go to those individuals who not only have the lived experience of incarceration, but also have the academic discipline and actually have the study and the research, as well as the application to begin to provide an analysis of how this system was developed and designed and how it's impacting our communities and how it has such a disproportionate impact on black and brown and poor communities. And it was then that we decided to go around the country. We were given a very, very generous grant. And he and I traveled all across America looking for people 
who had spent time in prison but were doing some amazing work. At that time, the only prominent person that everyone knows and still knows to this day was Judge Gregory Mathis. Everyone knows that he spent three years in a criminal and a juvenile detention facility, came home, went to law school, and the rest is history. But Eddie um, said, no, there are many Judge Mathises. In fact, we know some right across the bridge in Jersey, and we have some folks down in Chicago and in Los Angeles. And so we were charged with identifying 50 people. And we were looking for people who had spent um, time in prison, who were out at least five years, who were doing public policy research kind of where we really weren't looking for direct service providers. Um, we needed more of that, but we were looking for thinkers, strategists, problem solvers. And they also had to be people, um, we wanted them to have academic credentials, of course, and then we were looking for people who were willing to self-disclose. This was big at that time because the stigma of a person being formally incarcerated and I'll go back and talk about that in a moment. And a person who was black and formerly incarcerated had double stigma. And so the whole idea that black men would attempt to try to address a system that we consider by design uh, for the purpose of incarcerating black men who were deemed as dangerous and violent uh, was something that um, it both impassioned us and angered us at the same time. Uh, but we gathered these individuals from across the country. We brought them back to New York in a retreat. We had a five-day retreat. We talked about criminal justice from A to Z. And out of this uh, retreat was born the Center for New Leadership on Urban Solutions. So let me ask you this. Um, um, talk about some of the initiatives that have briefly um, that have come out of the center. And because I will come in terms of some of the new stuff that you're working on, but sure. talk historically about some of the work that um, the center has done. Well, I'll tell you that the first campaign that we launched, uh, interestingly enough, I was just uh, looking through my library and I ran across one of the books uh, that inspired us and the band played on um, about what was happening with the bathhouses in San Francisco where uh, HIV was first transmitted and everyone was so puzzled, but they narrowed it down that this is where the contraction was taking place. And what inspired me about that is that the very first thing that the um, gay community did was to organize. First thing they did was say, we first got to organize, we need to collect data, we need to find out who we have, who has what expertise. And then the second thing they did was begin to start working on the language. They begin to say that we don't want to be referred to by these derogatory terms, but instead we want to be referred to as gay people. And as a result of that, the power of them actually taking control of the language and defining themselves, speaking for themselves, actually was the was the nucleus of, of that movement and how, you know, HIV and AIDS galvanized that community and allowed them to organize in a way that they could become politically powerful. Even to this day, we were influenced, of course, by um, Eddie Ellis's experience in the Black Panther Party and the Civil Rights Movement, of course, the suffrage movement and the women's rights movement, all those movements inspired us. But our first campaign was the language campaign. Uh, we decided that we no longer wanted to be referred to as ex-convicts and ex-offenders and ex-inmates and ex-prisoners. We no longer want to be defined by the worst thing that ever happened to us because that only that only spoke to one portion of our life. It didn't speak to the fact that we were fathers and mothers and that we were neighbors and that we were consumers and some of us were, were teachers and employees. So we were many things. We were not um, just that 
worst thing that ever happened in our life. And we So can I just jump in for a absolutely. second and ask you a question? Because we talked about, for example, the difference. Um, a lot of um, we hear a lot of um, organizations, advocates talk, use the term returning citizens and uh, the term formerly incarcerated has been used as well. Yes. Can you just give us your thoughts? Yeah, some people that? some people attempt to use the terms interchangeably, and I I don't know if everybody goes as in depth as we do and is as thoughtful about it. We actually had a, a language campaign that forced us to have to do a lot of study in linguistics, so we understand the power of language and when you use words, what it conveys, and it has many meanings. And sometimes it could be allegorical and it could be symbolic. So we look at language in in a number of ways. The idea of the term returning citizens, we, first of all, we were excited about it because uh, it was at least a deviation from the use of the derogatory terms as ex-offenders and ex-convicts. So with that, we were thrilled. But as we began to think about it, we said, well, hold up, we're studying the population of people in federal and state prisons, and we have quite a number of people who are in our prison systems who are undocumented. In fact, we have quite a number of people who were placed in the prison system because they were undocumented and because they had committed and many times a minor crime, but that minor crime led them to be incarcerated. And the incarceration of a person who is undocumented in most cases will lead to deportation. So these individuals were not citizens before they went in. They're not citizens while they're there, and they will not be citizens upon their return. So then that would be a misnomer. That that terminology would not apply to this vast number of people who are in prison. So we revert back to the use of the term formerly incarcerated because it's all-encompassing. It captures everyone who did time uh, in prison, and we think it's a more appropriate use of the term. But by no means will we tell those who use the term returning citizen, we won't demand that they stop, but we will educate them and inform them about the use of the term and how I can see some folks even taking offense to that if they fall in that category of folks who are undocumented. So let's turn to um, how the center has been able to, over the years, impact policy here in New York City. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. Uh, well, you know, it's really interesting when we first came on the scene, we understood that it was an uphill battle. We understood that we wasn't going to be greeted with open arms. Because there was nothing like this. There was nothing like this. It was new. It was new for us. We were in uncharted territory. Uh, most of the people around the policy table were white men uh, and um, some white women. And uh, they uh, did not live in our community, so they didn't have uh, that experience. And they were making all the policies, you know, for everything from education to the economy. And so we, you know, felt that if we could get to the table, if we could make it to the table, then we could inject, you know, some new ideas, some new thinking around it. And we um, believe then and now that the combination of our lived experience, uh, both prior to um, prison, as well as our prison experience, as well as our academic study, as well as our practice, the combination of those factors gave us a unique perspective that no one else could bring to the table and that we were convinced that we would bring added value to the degree that over time they would begin to understand that those who are most directly impacted and closest to the problem are also closest to the solution. And we began to um, 
go to conferences. And we sometimes invited, sometimes not invited. You know, we would actually walk around with, with our nameplates. And uh, there were times when we would just have a seat on the dais and just put our nameplate there. Wow. And yeah, and we had to take those kind of bold and courageous. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, we had to pretty much kick the door in. You know, uh, one interesting point that, you know, I just want to make sure um, it goes on the air is that we were not even well received sometimes by our peers and certainly by people who were doing criminal justice work. Again, these were mostly white men and women because we wanted to be our own voice. And because we wanted to be our own voice, they, they saw us as a threat. Um, that we were going to take away grant dollars, you know, and, and opportunities for them. And that um, it was even said in a few instances that we were um, showing a lack of gratitude by wanting to be our own voice and speak for ourselves and stand up for ourselves. And so because uh, I, I wanted to be understood that where we are today is a far cry from where we were then, but it's been an uphill battle and it's been a fight. And we did not have the luxury of making mistakes and errors. We could not come out without first doing rigorous study because there was every attempt to try to undermine our credibility and our legitimacy. So we always had to stay up later. We had to run faster. We had to study harder. Uh, and we always had to be on point because we were always under the gun. And even to this day, I mean, this is 2019. The, the movement really took off around 2003-4. It's really when it took off. So even now, um, there are still, you know, questions about what it is uh, we're up to. You know, we, um, you know, find ourselves both the subject and the object of our analysis. So I understand that that we have our own blind spots, that, that there is a, a certain bias you know, and a certain prejudice even within ourselves because we um, always felt that we weren't treated fairly, right? So we always have that tilt that, that, that we have to, you know, get what's our due. And we sometimes might color the discussion in ways that may not always be, you know, um, as concrete as, as we want it to be. And I say all that to say that, so we recognize that. Um, we recognize that, that we are biased towards ourselves, but we also recognize that um, no matter how much we achieve, that we can never close the, the, the structural inequity gap. The, the inequities between the rich and the poor um, are, are too vast. The accumulation of wealth uh, in this country um, is too profound. And that the institutions of today that were built to protect the wealth, you know, of the rich, you know, and the privileged um, are not going to go out without a fight. So I understood where this resistance was coming from. And it's something that we have to grapple with. And so I don't always take it personal when I get pushed back and when, sure. you know, because I, I understand the dynamics, the larger dynamics of what's happening here. And people have probably have every reason to be concerned about their health and welfare and their careers and so forth. And oftentimes when you're in the forefront of movements, there oftentimes is suspicion, yes, resistance. absolutely. Especially from those who occupied that space yeah, yeah. Uh, in the past and not to say that they haven't do, done work, but this often in the not-for-profit space happened. So I had the opportunity to work with the center doing some civic restoration mm -hmm. work, which was extremely important and, and 
many communities don't realize that uh, this is a tremendous resource that was offered by the center. I want to turn to the discussion around um, re-entry. Um, many uh, conversations have been had indicating that there are no successful re-entry programs. And um, there needs to be more attention paid to people coming back um, to uh, communities after being incarcerated. Um, your thoughts about the the state of reentry programs, not only just in this state, but if you want to give a brief overview of what your thoughts are uh, nationally. Well, let me take a stab at it. Let me say that when people say that there are no successful reentry programs, what I believe what they're saying in the larger context of what's happening in the United States and what has happened, the reentry programs are designed for failure um, at their initial stages of development. And here's why. The communities that are today the feeders of the system are the same communities that were identified in the seven neighborhood study that was conducted by a group of men in the Greenhaven Correctional Facility in the 70s, where they were able to show that 85% of the uh, individuals in New York State Prison came from seven neighborhoods. 75% of the 85% were men who were black or Latino. And that these communities that they came from are the same communities that had been historically neglected. They had the highest rates of unemployment. They had failing public school systems. They had substandard housing. They Red had poor lines. quality health care, redlining. All of these factors were a part of these communities. And so these communities have been under siege for decades, uh, one war after the other. Uh, start with the war on poverty, then the war on crime, then the war on drugs, then the war on immigration, then the war on, I mean, it's just one war after the other. So you would think that after all of these wars, that these communities have been reduced to rubble. Although not using conventional weapons, the outcome has been the same. They've removed hundreds and thousands, if not millions of individuals from those communities. Those were fathers, those were mothers, those were uh, folks who worked, who were employed, who were raising children. They were teachers, they were neighbors. And so the whole social fabric has been completely disrupted in these communities. The economic base has been undermined because if you have mass incarceration taking place in any community, there's a divestment. There's not enough consumer base to support the businesses, so they begin to disappear. So what you come to find is that these communities now that have been under siege have lost their capacity to sustain not only those who remain there, but certainly don't have the capacity to receive those who are coming back. And so the best reentry program could not be successful under those circumstances because the infrastructure is just not there. There is no capacity to provide jobs and employment and health care and education and vocational skills and mental health and substance abuse treatment because that capacity has been destroyed as a result of one war after the other. And so in order for any reentry program to be successful, we first have to talk about community and economic development. We first have to talk about how do we rebuild these communities. It's interesting, in 1945, 
the United States created the, the Marshall Plan uh, because they knew that uh, Europe had sustained uh, World War One, World War Two, and everything in between, the Cold War, and so their capacity had been diminished. So in order for them to be able to uh, be a rising power, the United States invested billions of dollars to rebuild Europe under its Marshall Plan. Why? Because the aftermath of war. Well, now we take that same analogy and we apply it to these communities who have suffered four or five wars, if not more, and how the United States, the government, you know, has a particular obligation to rebuild these communities. And so I applaud all of the reentry programs in their efforts, but a lesson in two, we look at it in this broader context of how we have to rebuild infrastructure and capacity in those communities where those individuals will be returning. Those efforts are not nearly as effective as they could be. We'll be right back with Dr. Devine Pryor after the break. Marking 400 years since enslaved Africans arrived in Jamestown, the film Black Boys seeks to illuminate the full spectrum of black male humanity in America through an intimate, intergenerational conversation at the intersection of sports, education, and criminal justice. With executive producer Malcolm Jenkins and director Sonia Lohman, Black Boys elevates an urgent and timely conversation on identity, opportunity, and equity to reimagine success for black males in America. This is a Never Whisper Justice film. We must prepare our black boys with skills to survive and thrive. We must also change systems and institutions. They are often reduced to just being a body. You exist in a world where nobody sees you, but everybody sees you. And when they see you, your silhouette doesn't look like you, it's a monster. These young people don't need saviors, they need believers. We're back with Dr. Devine Pryor. So I want to turn to one of your new initiatives that we've talked about previously, which is the People's Police Academy. And can you talk about how this started? What, what What's the vision for this initiative? And where will it be happening? Yeah, it's, uh, it's an exciting vision. It started in 2015 when former Commissioner William Bratton and I got into a back and forth at a town hall meeting in Harlem. And I had made some pretty harsh critiques, but I also made some very strong recommendations, which I often do. I never make a critique without saying, but if I had it my way, here's how I would do it. And so I made some recommendations, which he thought was very thought-provoking and very enlightening. But he then said, but I don't know if, you know, if you're qualified to make those criticisms. And before I can respond, he said, hold up. First of all, it's obvious to everyone here, you know criminal justice. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the NYPD is the largest law enforcement agency in the world. We train police in China, in Australia, in Japan. Uh, so you would have to first know our history, our background, our tactics, you know, our strategies, our philosophy, before you would even know if your criticisms are accurate. So I said, okay, that's fair. So someone said, well, how would he know? And he says, well, Dr. Pryor already kind of disclosed his background, so that wouldn't be possible. So, you know, um, they said, well, what if he didn't disclose? They said, well, basically, he'd like have to go to our police academy, you know, um, first, First and foremost, long story short of it, I got a call and some discussions happened and they sent me through their Citizens Police Academy. I also went through their cadet corps. They asked me to do a presentation 
Um, when I was on my way or the day before I got a call, they said that there would be a few extra people at the meeting. I said, fine. I got to the meeting and that few turned out to be about 45 people. Every policy person at the NYPD could get their hands on, every researcher, every analyst, every chief, every patrol person. And they were there and they were anxious. They wanted to hear because by that time word had spread what my background was. There were only two people when I went through that knew I was formerly incarcerated because this had never happened before. And so when word got out, they people started signing on. They wanted to hear this. So I went to the meeting and I said a lot of things and I won't, you know, uh, give it all to you. Let, let me tell you what the premise um, of my conversation with them was. It was that by the time a police officer is experienced enough and seasoned enough and knowledgeable enough to train other officers, she or he at that time is jaded. They're jaded because the experience of a police officer with the public is one where police officers come in contact with civilians really at the worst point, not at the best. It's very rare that a police officer says their whole day was a pleasant day, that they met wonderful people who were kind and considerate. More than likely, they encounter people at their worst. They encounter people who, for whatever reason, are upset, they're mad, they're frustrated, they're angry. They've seen blood, there's been shooting, there's been killing, raping. So they are But jaded. they also provide service to the community and they're helpful. Well, it depends uh, on what community it is. The sure. um, black and brown communities see the police as the occupying force. Um, they don't see... I, now, I can tell you this, um, interestingly enough, because I have, you know, friends in all communities... All communities are not patrolled the same. Um, let, let, let me be. Let I'm me just sure. be honest with you, and let me say that police officers, uh, for the most part, understand this. I mean, they're, they're, you got to understand they're part of a machine, uh, and they are driven um, by data. Now, we won't get into the conversation about quotas. Uh, but they don't refer to them as quotas. They refer to them as performance indicators. Okay, use whatever terminology you want. The, the outcome is still the same. The, the reason why I raise this issue is because it is true that in certain communities, police have a different role and a different relationship and a different interaction with the community and other communities they don't. Uh, I remember even challenging Commissioner Bratton. I said, listen, I could take you right now. We could go um, get off the one train at Columbia at 116th and, and we can walk from, from, from one side of the campus to the other. And what you'll see in little pockets, you'll see uh, white men and women sitting there smoking weed. There's a, a pile here, one there, one there. I said, and by the time we go across, we'll have at least 10 groups of folks. I said, now, you don't find it interesting that there's no police making arrests here? You you don't find that startling at all, that all of this marijuana that you and I could observe with our own eyes never comes in contact with law enforcement. I said, and if I know this, then of course law enforcement knows it. Why do I say this? Because the system is very biased and it's very prejudiced and it's outright racist at times. Uh, not all situations are colored by race, but many situations are. And that's another thing that causes those officers to be jaded. I sat through and it was, let me tell you something, I had a visceral response on many days sitting through the uh, police academy training because some of the things I was hearing, I couldn't believe it. I had to ask him to rewind. Did you just say, they said some egregious things and and made no apologies for it. I mean, because... From their view, if in fact they've bought into the hysteria that black men are violent, 
and predatory and prone, you know, to, to, to violence and be killers and drug dealers and, you know, we have aberrant behavior, then you will approach accordingly. And so we, we have to change that narrative. So the People's Police Academy emerged out of that discussion when I said that they need an alternative training experience that came out of the community, that I thought that their um, academic experience was very one-sided, that it was very, very um, biased, um, it was very prejudiced, and I didn't think that it was possible for them to provide an objective learning experience, and it was not fair to the officers. That's the part that they really got interested in when I said, and it's not fair to the new recruits. And so they allowed me to work with their curriculum development uh, committee for an entire year, myself and Reverend Q English. And together we developed four modules. And one module was dealing with the issue of uh, race relations, although they didn't want to use that name. They wanted to use the term cultural literacy. I said, fine, cultural literacy. Uh, we wanted to deal with the history of crime and punishment in America. They didn't want to call it that. They wanted to call it the evolution of policing. Fine. We then dealt with uh, the whole issue of community engagement as a science. They let me keep that. I was happy. I was had to applaud that because we needed to demonstrate to them that community engagement is not hocus pocus. There's, there's science, there's theory behind this, and there's a whole science of how you engage a community effectively that the um, police department should know. And then the uh, last part is a problem-solving laboratory where the police officers, along with community leaders, actually sit for an entire day and problem solve um, and come up with public safety initiatives in that precinct. Pub the People's Police Academy started off with a three-day training. It's three intense days, and it not only involves classroom training, but actually going into the communities. There's a tour. Uh, we provide lunch from, from about 10 different restaurants in that precinct, and they're very precinct-based. And the whole idea is that Leadership in the local community and law enforcement work together for three days on the third day in which they create a public safety project that they'll work on thereafter and that that will begin to start changing the dynamic in the community, changing the synergy because now they have shared objectives, they have shared goals, and they understand that public safety is not um, the exclusive domain of law enforcement, but it's really a collective responsibility. It's a shared responsibility that we all take part in and that whether the community wants to accept it or not, law enforcement is part of the community and they're not going away. And so the most and effective thing- And we care thing, about public safety And we, care, we care about, we do <laughs> care about, we have never met a person, I've never met a person who didn't care about public safety. Even people in prison care about public safety. They care about their children and their nieces and nephews. I haven't met the person yet. I'm sure there's some person out there who say, well, no, I don't I, I don't want to live in a safe community. But for the most part, practically everyone wants to be safe. They want to eat decent food. They want a place to live. They, you know, to lay their head down and get some rest. They want a little entertainment in life. So so most people want public safety. We just need to get law enforcement and the community together to begin to form this chorus so that they understand that we both want the same thing. You're coming from a different angle, but there is a happy medium where we can coexist and we can co-create public safety. And so the People's Police Academy is the engine to begin that process. And then there are many other pieces that are going to flow out of it. So uh, I'm, I'm excited about its potential. So will there be pilots happening around the cities? Yeah, there, there are actually, the there's some pilots right now in Bedford-Stuyvesant, for instance, with the 79th Precinct, the um, leadership in Bed-Stuy, and the 79th Precinct are actually working on the first pre-arrest diversion 
program. When I say pre-arrest, I mean that there's no fingerprinting. I mean that there is no handcuffs, um, that there are no mugshots taken, that for a range of offenses that uh, we have agreed on, I believe there are about 13 of them, the police officers will instead divert that person into the Center for New Leadership, actually, and that individual will be responsible to undergo a whole 18-month process, where, and this is all voluntary. Um, they will receive mentorship and they will receive, you know, job readiness and training and access to education. And we say that they will have a second chance, although we know a lot of them, this is their first chance. That's a whole nother discussion. But what we are trying to do is let police know that arrest doesn't have to be your only tool. And because if the only thing that you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. So we're saying, no, let us give you a whole toolkit. Um, there are many instances where you just don't have to make that arrest. And um, I've had officers tell me, uh, particularly uh, white officers from the outer boroughs, from Suffolk County, Nassau County, tell me with a straight face that we, we generally don't arrest youth in our communities. That's not what we do. Um, we'll you know, do some scared straight, right? We might take them to the precinct and scare them. We'll call their coach. We might call the Catholic priest. We might have a counseling session with the family. So they already know that there are an array of different tools. Depending upon use. neighborhoods on Long Island. Absolutely. However, very similar to... to uh, Long Island is no different than anywhere else yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, in the yeah. state in terms of how they're being policed. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're coming to the close of our conversation, oh, but I really? know that, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, but I know that um, our listeners are, one, going to want to find out more information about the Center for New Leadership. So if you could provide information about how people can access information and also how can people uh, contact you. Okay, so we'll start with me. So the People's Police Academy, you can contact me at People's Police Academy 1, that's the number one, at gmail.com. And I am in the process of setting up office space. In fact, I have a beautiful space uh, in Brooklyn and in Queens that I'm about to sign lease with. But if you email me um, at People's Police Academy 1 at gmail.com, I will definitely uh, respond back to you and I will keep you abreast. In fact, what I will do is put you on my list and you'll be on my listserv because I want you to know of all the new developments. I believe that we will be fully operational by next year this time. We will have several office spaces. We will have selected a number of precincts who will be undergoing training. We'll be overseeing about a half a dozen public safety projects uh, throughout the city of New York. We'll have a newsletter. I've already started working on the newsletter. Our website will be up and be fully operational. It'll connect you to resources and initiatives around the city. The Center for New Leadership is very easy. Centerfornewleadership.org. Centerfornewleadership.org. If you go to the website, it is comprehensive. And it has just a load of information. And you can follow them on Instagram, on Facebook. I'll be doing the same with the People's Police Academy as well. So please thank you again, listening audience. Uh, thank you, Rosemond, for giving me this opportunity to speak to your listening audience. It's been an absolute pleasure. I can't believe we're out of time, but perhaps, you know, uh, you, we'll you might be kind bring enough you to back bring me. Thank and you. We want to talk more about the Academy. Uh, as you've heard, we've been speaking with Dr. Devine Pryor, the former executive director of the Center for New Leadership on Urban Solutions. Thank you so much. Dr. Thank Pryor. you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
you've been listening to another episode of Black Boys and Men, Changing the Narrative, which is produced by the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at New York University. McSilver is committed to creating new knowledge about the root causes of poverty, developing evidence-based interventions to address its consequences, and rapidly translating research findings into action through policy and best practices. Learn more about the McSilver Institute at mcsilver.nyu.edu or on social media at NYU McSilver. Many thanks to Never Whisper Justice for their work on the second season of Black Boys and Men, Changing the Narrative. Listeners can find the latest episodes of the podcast series on multiple platforms, including Google Play Music, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. I'm Rose Pierre-Louis. Thank you for listening.